Um, good to see you. Come and grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Ruth because we are going to get there very soon. We're starting our, a new sermon series today, our summer sermon series that's going to take us through the book of Ruth. It will take us to um, the end of August uh, when we'll finish it or we'll wrap it up and then it'll be something fresh for um, December. Sorry, September. Now, Before we get into the story today, I don't know if you've ever been through one of those situations that we describe as bittersweet, where there's something there's something sad about it, but actually there's always it's also tinged with happiness as well. You've got this funny mix of a a bit of both going on at the same time, and it can be interesting trying to process the emotions in there. As I was thinking about this, the, the the immediate kind of example came to mind was my grandparents' funeral. Um, which um, they actually came quite... I have four grandparents. They came... They died fairly close together, um, and I was involved in their funeral process. And it was one of those times where you celebrate end of life, but they were all well into their 80s when they died. Um, they'd Both sets of them had had 60 years plus of marriage. I remember golden wedding anniversary. I remember diamond wedding anniversaries. You're like, wow, that was incredible, the life. But actually it was tinged with the sadness as they were gone. They'd moved on, and we had to kind of process that. I spoke at the funerals. I carried the coffins. Um, and so there was great sadness. But during the funerals, we also celebrated their life. We talked about the things that they'd done, and we had lots of laughs and giggles as we remembered their idiosyncrasies and their little habits and the things they said and the way they spoke and the stories that we could kind of come up with about them. So it was a beautiful time of remembering, even though it was a sadness of saying goodbye, and that was uh, the end of their kind of journey on this life kind of thing. And so it was just, it was tragic from that kind of view, but again, a great time of celebration as well. And what we're going to look at today as we hit the beginning of the book of Ruth is this bittersweet story that's going to come through. As we look at it and we we start out today, there's going to be something, there's going to be great tragedy in it, but at the same time there's going to be some good things as well coming through. And life is often like that. Doesn't it's not all one or the other, there's both things happening at the same time. Now, hopefully you've found the book of Ruth in your Bible. I put out an email, I think it was last week. And I said a few weeks back, encouraging you to read it. I hope you've had a little read-through. It's a really short book. It's only four chapters buried in our Old Testament. I also put out a video to watch, a little short video that kind of explained the structure of the book. Hopefully you'd had a little opportunity to read that so you're just familiar with where we're going today. If you haven't done that, have a go at doing that. It's really interesting and will help you deal with the book. Now, the book of Ruth is only one of two books in the Bible named after a female the other one being Esther, and it's the only one named after a non-Jew. Ruth wasn't even a Jew, and that's significant as we come through the story. Um, And the story was set during a very dark period of Israel's history, in the time of the Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it just goes from bad to worse to like, oh my goodness, you know, that kind of thing. And it was set towards the end of that, and if you read right at the end of the book of Judges, it describes this time. It's basically said, Israel had no king, and everyone did whatever they wanted. You know, it was just a really kind of damning indictment of what society was like um, at the time. The book contains uh, three main characters. There's Ruth, who the book is named after. There's her uh, uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, who's a Jewish widow. And then there's Boaz, who's a noble Jewish man. And now the interesting thing about the book is that God is mentioned multiple times in the book. But actually, he's, he's mentioned by name, but he doesn't actually directly get involved in the story. I think there's a 23 times he's mentioned, and 21 of those are by people acknowledging God, saying praise the Lord, or something like that. 
So he's acknowledged and he's present, but he's not actually active in the story. The other two mentions are at the beginning and the end, kind of like narrator speaking about it. Um, and so many stories, if you go into the Bible, you read like, say, the book of Exodus. There's loads of stuff of God speaking dramatically, dynamic. You have angelic visitations. You have miracles. You have the presence of God coming and the place shaking and people falling on their face. Ruth has none of that. Ruth is just an ordinary story, which is interesting what Andy spoke about last week, if you were here. Serving God in the ordinary. It's just an ordinary story of ordinary men and women serving God together, working, walk, walking and following after God, and how God uses people from different backgrounds, different situations to advance his overall purpose. It's also a love story. Everyone go, ah. Oh. It's a love story between Ruth and um, Boaz, and how God brings them together, and if you've read the story, you'll kind of know how that ends. The book um, has three kind of themes, which I want you to be looking out for as we go through it. The first one is the providence of God. Providence of God is basically the Bible's teaching that God works through all circumstances, good and bad. The hand, God's hand is on everything. No matter what's going on, God is at work. He is sovereign. He is ruling over his creation at all times. And he is working ultimately for his good. Whether something good happens or something terrible happens, the hand of God is involved and moving forward. And as we go through this book, you'll see the hand of God working, even though he's not actually explicit, like an angel turned up and said, by the way, this is going to happen. But we still see the hand of God working his purposes out, particularly when we look at next week. There's a, a verse in verse, oh, chapter three, verse, sorry, chapter 2, verse 3 where it says that Ruth happened to come across this particular field and the hand of God there is in that in terms of whose field it was. And if you've read the story, you'll know all about that. A second theme is the whole theme of answered prayer. There are multiple prayers prayed through the book. If you read it, it'd be worth it. It's an exercise. Go through and mark them all. And by the end of the book, every single one is answered. And here's another thing about the prayers. They're all prayed on behalf of others. People don't pray for themselves, they pray for others. Naomi prays for a husband for Ruth. Prays for, they, they, they both pray for a blessing on Boaz. They both pray for a blessing on Ruth and a child for Ruth and Boaz. And all these things come are answers. So by the end of the book, you have all these prayers and God has answered them all. Not necessarily the way they expected, but they've all been answered. The third theme is the loving kindness of God. There's a Hebrew word, which I've found in my study, called hesed which basically summarizes God's attributes of love, grace, mercy, kindness, compassion, patience. And there's no decent translation in the English. They, the best the authors can come up with is loving kindness. But this comes up multiple times in the book, the loving kindness of God. It appears throughout the Old Testament, it's about 250 times throughout our Old Testament Bible, this word comes up and it comes up again in Ruth. And it's often used to describe God in his wonderful attributes, but it can be used to describe people who display those attributes. And we'll see evidence of the loving kindness of God being displayed through people as we read this story. But despite all that, this book's really also only about one person, and that's Jesus. Because ultimately, everything points to Jesus. It's about the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that he would, prom- he would bless Abraham with a son, and he would bless Abraham with descendants, and one of those descendants would one day be the ruler and reigner over everything. And as we follow the story through, the book of Ruth is about preserving that promise and keeping that promise going. We've called the series Love Line because it's a love story between two humans, but actually it's really about a love story between God and his people. 
and how he preserves the line from Abraham all the way through Ruth, through Boaz, to ultimately the greatest king in Israel's history, which is David, and then ultimately to the greatest king, Jesus. If you read the genealogies in the New Testament, you'll see these names come up. And so actually there is a love story we're going to look at, but behind it there is a much bigger divine love story that we're going to be looking at. A couple of books if you want to read, if you're a reader and you'd like to follow along. This one here, Faithful God by Sinclair B. Ferguson, is a great sort of read-along with the book of Ruth. Um, I've written, I've got loads of notes through it that I've scrawled all over it. If you want to get this, you can pick it up on Amazon or thereabouts. That's a good one to read along with it. Another one which I've found entertaining and different is this one. The word-for-word Bible comic. This is, this is a fascinating exercise from a Christian author who basically takes the exact text of the Bible but then illustrates it. So this is, this is the book of Ruth here, word-for-word. Word. Every single word of the Bible is in here, but he's chosen to illustrate it. And so I picked this up on Amazon a few weeks back and thought, that'd be interesting. And it's, it's fascinating actually seeing it visualized as well as written. Our Bible's written, but actually this is a visual alongside. So pick that up. I'm going to have a look at that. That's a fascinating read. So some of the kids and the teenagers might like that as well, to actually see what you're actually reading as well. All right, let's get into it. Have you found Ruth? Chapter 1, we're going to read the first chapter. It should appear. Oh, it's there. Look at that. It should appear like magic behind me. I'm going to read it. Ready? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and his wa- the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Chilion died, so that the woman were left without her two sons and her husband. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? But I have yet sons in my wombs, and they have become your husbands. I turn back, my daughters. Have we missed something out there? Can we go? We missed the slider. I didn't scan properly. Go back. Oh, I have to get my Bible. There. No, go back. We want verse 6. There you go. So everyone's died, basically. And then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you, you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. There's a prayer. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I have, have I yet sons in my wounds, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has tested against me, sorry, testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. Big idea. God is always at work in our lives in the good and the bad times. God is always at work in our life in the good and the bad times. Three things. Let's go through the story. Tragedy, conversion, return. First part, tragedy, first five verses. Okay, the, the story begins, author sets the scene, verse, first few verses kind of sets up where we're going. He sets it up chronologically. This begins in the time of the judges, very bad time. It was before their first king, King Saul, and David would come after him. So that's the frame. So, so if you're reading, you're thinking, uh-oh, this is not a great place to start a story. Um, historically, um, a famine had struck the land, it says. Now, uh, if you read your Old Testament, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, famines can be because of disobedience against God. There's actually a threat. If you break the law, you transgress his law, actually there's a, a threat of punishment. And one of them could be um, a famine. We didn't say it explicitly, but there's that undertone there. That could be the reason behind it. There's also a geographical opening. Uh, Bethlehem. Where do we know Bethlehem from? That sounds familiar. Who was born in Bethlehem? Two really important people in the Bible were born in Bethlehem. They are David and... Ah, okay. Interesting note you've put in there. The greatest king in Israel's history and the king of kings were born in this place. Also, Bethlehem, I found out, means house of bread. In a famine? Okay. Something's going on here. There's the house of bread, but there's a famine going on. And also there's a personal opening, and it talks about Elimelech. He was a husband and he had his wife Naomi and they had a couple of sons. This is also ominous because the two sons' names, Marlon means sick and Chilean means frail or weak. I mean, one, I don't know who names their kids that anyway, but that's what their names. So you're kind of thinking, this is not a good setup. Bad timing. The place they live in, there is some positive to come, but actually it's many of you called House of Bread, but there's a famine going on. Is that the judgment of God? There's this family, and they've got two sons, and they've called one sick and one frail. You're like, this is just not going to go well. It can't. I mean, it's just a bad setup. And it seems Elimelech, in response to what was happening at the time, was to move his family. And again, this has kind of got, is this the best move, Elimelech? Rather than, if it was, um, uh, they were living in a bad time, if it was a judgment of God, what do you do in, in the face of the judgment of God? Or God's saying, this is right, you repent. You sort it out. You come back to God. You deal with it. But Elimelech was like, I'm just going to move. I'm just going to go somewhere else. And they go to the country of Moab, which is just getting worse. Moab wasn't a good place for the people of God. It was just, you didn't go there. If you follow its history throughout the Bible, it began, Genesis 19, the, the country of Moab, the nation of Moab, began be, between incest, 
between Lot, who was, I think, nephew of Abraham, and one of his daughters. So you're like, that's just not a good start. That's a good start. It um, resisted. Uh, the nation grew out of it, as many of the nations did around there. When uh, Israel came out of Egypt from slavery of the Exodus, Moab was one of the nations that resisted them and said, no, we're not going to stand in your way. It was the one that, whose women went in there and seduced the men of Israel and were punished as a result. They were explicitly in Deuteronomy banned from the congregation of Israel. They were said they were so bad and they were so anti He said, the Moabite cannot come into the congreg- congregation of Israel. Others had, but they can't because they're just so bad. And they're literally in the book of Judges. If you go back to Judges chapter 3, there was a king in Moab called Eglon. It's a... Great story, one of my favorite stories in Judges. But he oppressed Israel. So in recent kind of history, they'd been attacking and invading and destroying Israel. And what's more, they worshipped the false god Chemosh, who was this rather horrific pagan deity. And so it was just bad, bad, bad. But Elimelech said, let's go to Moab. And so we've just got a beginning of the story that's just, it's just on a, you know like when you see the planes crashing, and you're like, you know where it's going to go. This is what's happening. This is the trajectory of it. So they go and they move to Moab. And then literally as soon as they arrive, it seems Elimelech dies. Doesn't say anything more about how or why. Just, he dies. So he's, written. so he's the one who made the decision. He is now written out of the story. He dies. And you think that's tragic. That's terrible for a wife to lose her husband, to go through that horror. But all is not lost because she has two sons. And they marry women. They marry Moabite women. You think, I'm not sure that's the best choice, marrying someone outside the covenant of God's people. Uh, but that's what she did. They, they did, and actually there was kind of rules saying you shouldn't do that. And after 10 years, though, they'd had no children, which is unusual. That is unusual for both of the sons to be married for that long not to have kids. Something's up there. doesn't explicitly say why, but actually is this, again, God's hand in the situation saying, actually, where you are, you shouldn't be. What you're doing, you shouldn't be doing. And then the final blow in this tragic story is both Marlon and Chilion die. And so you've got the three deaths of the three kind of males in the story up till now. And it is tragic. Now for Naomi, this is the worst possible scenario that could happen to her. No welfare state. Nothing like that to support her. She's a widow. Widows come, if you mark in the Bible, they're ones who particularly asked by God, you need to look after these people because they've got no family line now. She's got no sons, so there's no chance of anyone to look after her in her own age to provide for her. Husband's gone. She is in an absolute terrible position. No future, no hope, nothing. She's got the worst hand she could have kind of been dealt in life right there in front of her with the loss of her husband and her children. The family line... For her, he's ended. It's all over. And I don't know about you, have you ever faced tragedy in life? Have you ever come across those difficult times where you think, oh my goodness, are we ever going to be get beyond this? Are we ever going to get out of this? Is, this? is this kind of, feels like the end. I feel like I've got nothing more to go on from this point. I'm facing kind of the abyss. This is where Naomi was in her life. But after all that tragedy, we get the conversion so something happens. Now this is a picture, this next section is a pit 6 to 10, is a picture of divine grace, of God's hand um, coming on Naomi and leading her into better things. So within the midst of her pain and the midst of her suffering, it must have been terrible, she hears good news. And it's that grace of God that she actually is able to hear 
the good news in the midst of that. Sometimes when you're suffering a pain, almost you can't hear what people are saying to you, but she hears. What's the good news? Well, actually, back in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the Lord has visited them, and they've got harvest. They've now got food. Circumstances have changed over there, and she's heard it, and God has intervened on behalf of his people. Bethlehem is now kind of living up to its name, something good. And it seems Naomi makes a decisive response. If you look, verse 6, verse 7, it says, She arose and she set out. She set up and she says, I'm, I'm going to make a positive decision out of this. I'm going to do something. I'm going to go back to where I used to live, back to God's people, back to the house of bread where there is food and provision for me. And in response to that, she gets her two, um, her two daughters-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. She releases them. So actually, just go back to your people. Go back um, and get married. She mentions that they've, they've expressed kindness to her. There's that word has said. They, the way they've looked after her and they've been with her and they've stuck with her through the tragedy and everything else. And they've looked after her, obviously, in the time when her husband's been dead. They would have been around and their husbands have been around. She said, that's great, but actually go back. Go back and, and go back to your people she realized logically that's the best choice for these guys. Go back um, to your people. And she uses really emphatic language. She says, turn back. No, my daughter. She says, go away from me. I've got nothing left to offer you. And um, she says it quite graphically. She basically says, because of the way the culture says, I've got no more sons that you could marry. That was often a cultural thing. If one man died, another son or a brother would step up and carry on the family line for the deceased brother. She said, I haven't got any, there's no more sons left. They're all dead. And even if I did get a husband, which I haven't got, and I had another son right now, are you going to wait all those years for that person to grow up, that boy to grow up, so you then can marry them to carry on the family line? No, it's ridiculous. Of course you're not going to do that. So she releases them firmly and says, you go back to your people. She blames this situation on God. That's her kind of, uh, the, the object of her kind of anger in it all. And she says very clearly, you need to go back. And logically for both those girls, that was the right choice. Go back to their people. Go back to what they're familiar with. Go back to kind of the homes they had, family, friendships, everything that was kind of normal about their life. They were there you know, in Moab, and this is kind of what they're familiar with. And she was really clear. And we see one of the girls does this, isn't it? Orpah, she, she goes. After initially kind of resisting, she leaves and she returns home. But Ruth doesn't do that. And Naomi's encouraged Ruth, you go back with your sister. And Ruth now faces this tough choice. You either follow Orpah back to her family, back to her gods. Even Naomi even says that. That way of life, what she knows, her home. Or basically you throw your lot in with Naomi and the God of Israel. Because that's all you got. And Naomi's got nothing to offer you. So you've got this decision. What do you do? Do you go back to what's familiar, what's comfortable, where you've got a home, a family home, where you've got friends, where you've got, you've got stuff you know, or do you throw it in with an old widow who's got nothing but her God and her people, which would have been a completely different cultural, cultural sort of shift for her. And what does she do? What does she declare? Verse 16 and 17 are the two key verses in this passage. If you mark your Bible, mark them. They're the two. They're the ones you look at. And you have this utterly staggering statement from Ruth. What does she declare? It says, Do not urge me to leave you or return to you following you. For where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything else but death parts from you. The way that is phrased is the, the phraseology is almost making a formal pledge. Like if you're pledging something or taking an oath or taking a promise, that's the kind of the way the language is couched. So basically Ruth is making this formal pledge. I will pledge my life to you, Naomi. I will pledge it to your people. It's the people of God. I will pledge it to your God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and I will follow you to death. What is seen in this, what commentators see in this is actually the conversion of Ruth. Ruth is making a choice. She's weighed up the costs. She's weighed up her old way of life and what that means, following this false god and living over there, seeking to marry in Moab. And she's faced up, am I going to follow the God of Israel and his people? And she's been around Naomi for years and she'd have heard about the God of Israel and she'd heard about what he's done and the stories of the past, the exodus and the like and the promises been given. She said, which way am I going to go? And she throws her lot in with the God of Israel and the people of Israel. She throws her lot in, for our language, to follow Jesus. She gives up everything to do that. And we see in this dramatic moment, in the midst of incredible tragedy, because she's also lost her husband as well, after 10 years of marriage. Imagine the devastation of that. And within that pain, within that sorrow, she is determined to go with Naomi. She's determined to follow her. She's determined to throw, I'm going to leave my old way of life behind. I'm not going back there anymore. I'm throwing myself in with you. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I will not turn back. She's basically said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back now. And she gives everything over to Naomi. But when you think about it, it is pretty blooming ridiculous because Naomi can offer her nothing. She's got nothing from Naomi. Naomi's got no hope, no line, no future, no inheritance, nothing. But she does have the God of Israel. And so she chooses to follow her. And then the final scene of this passage is the return where they come back to Bethlehem. So it goes full circle. Start in Bethlehem, returns to Bethlehem many, many years later. And Naomi comes back in with this foreigner woman with her, and the town is stirred because she's got back. Won't have been a big place. The gossip network would have hit full kind of, poof. she's back, Naomi's back, what's going on? But then they ask this question, is this Naomi? And I imagine she's 10 years older, so a few more gray hairs, a few more wrinkles. But I don't know if you've ever met people who've been through difficult life circumstances, tragedies, who, who carry pain, bear pain. It can alter physical appearance. It can alter your posture, your stature. It can carry on you, the look in your eyes. It can carry a wear on you. And she comes back having left full, she said. Wife, her husband and two sons, she comes back. No, with nothing, poor old Ruth. I come back with nothing. I'm empty. You've got Ruth, but you come back with nothing. And she make, there's a play on her name. The name Naomi means pleasant. That's what it means. Beautiful name. And when they come back, and every time they're saying a name, hey, Pleasant's back. <laughs> Great to have you. And she's like, no. And she calls herself Mara, which means bitter. What was once good which was once great, which was once was going really well, has now my life has been transformed over this last decade and I'm now bitter and I'm so bitter I will not let you call me my name because that reminds me of what, what, what it was like. It was pleasant and now it's this tragedy. So you must call me bitter. So there is a constant reminder where people call Amara 
of the horror that she's been through and the great tragedy. She went away full and she comes back empty. But even in that bitterness, we've had the sweetness of uh, Ruth's conversion. What's the final verse um, of the chapter there? It says, they return. Naomi returns with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and they come back from the country of Moab. It says, they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest time. This would be about March, April. There's been news that God has revisited the land. The harvest is coming. This is actually apparently the first harvest of the season. So actually they're returning at an ideal time. The grace of God in action here. That actually they're returning at an ideal time. This will be the first harvest and there will be multiple harvests after that. So they're actually coming back at a great time of prosperity for the town. That they can then get involved in later on. So even in the image of that tragedy, you've got tragedy that happens with the death. You've got Naomi coming and saying, yes, I will go with you. I will follow you. I'm going to follow your God. You're going to be my people. But even though she can't kind of grasp that, she's still bitter. But even there's a hint, and we'll see that working out um, next week as we look at what that happens. But actually, despite your emptiness, she says, I'm just empty now. There is a fullness coming because the harvest is about to come. God has prepared. You've even returned at a time, the right time to be filled by God because there is a harvest coming for you. All right. Three things I want us to take away from this first part of the story. Number one, pain and tragedy is part of life. Pain and tragedy is part of life. We have an ideal example there in the life of Naomi thus far. Pain and tragedy is just part of life. And it's part of life for all of us. But there's sometimes you can get this... um, kind of undercurrent in the church and Christianity, but because you decide to follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay. And in one sense, yes, that's right, ultimately true. But actually in a day-to-day sense, no. In fact, the Bible says, do you know what? You've decided to follow Jesus, great. It's about to get worse. Not only is life going to carry on, which is just normal for everybody, but actually, you've now got an enemy who hates you and wants to destroy you. You're part of the church, which is going to come under persecution. And so actually, for all of us as believers, or if you're just a guest here and you haven't made a decision for Jesus, pain and tragedy is just part of life. It's something we just have to deal with and kind of get used to. And you might be thinking, um, you know, things are going well right now. Just wait for it. It'll come. You're welcome. I'm just telling you that. that just, that's just the way it is. Um, and many of you will know because you're thinking about your party. Yes, I've been through that. I know what that's like. And this can come in several ways. I kind of picked three out here. There may be more. But it can come by our own sinful actions, our own stupid decisions. We cause pain and tragedy in our life because we're dumb and we're stupid and we make wrong decisions. We make bad financial decisions. We make bad uh, relational decisions. We make bad work decisions. We just make bad decisions, things we say, things we do. We just do dumb stuff. Sometimes we know that God says don't do it and we do it anyway because we think we know better. Sometimes we just, our mouth just starts talking and we just start making decisions and we do stuff and, and, and we make bad decisions and they come back and they haunt us and they're difficult. I don't know if you've ever made any of them. I won't do a hands up because that would be embarrassing but all of you should put your hands up because we've all done that at different times. Sometimes they come through the actions of others. Sometimes people do things to us which cause us pain and suffering. They say vicious things about us. They lie, they slander, they steal for us. They seek to damage us and hurt us and run down our reputation. 
They lie and they manipulate situations against us. And all that kind of stuff happens. Sometimes people come against us and abuse us and just do bad things to us. And it's horrific. So we are not, it's not us doing things, it's people doing things to us. Sometimes they can actually come together. You almost get a back and forth with you think, do things, they do things. But actually there's just pain that can come from there. Also, the third one is life just happens. Sickness comes, tragedy comes. You know, the, 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 the economy turns, the, the company downsizes, you're suddenly redundant. It's not particularly anything coming against you for you, but it's just life happens and you just face these difficult, uncertain times that come against you. And we live in a fallen, broken world, and this is just part of the life that we need to live along. And if we know these kind of things are going to happen, what does that mean for us? Well, we need to be aware of it, and then we need to deal with it in a constructive, healthy way. And you can get difficult situations come into your life, and they could be on different scales. They could be small, comparative. They could be huge, comparatively. But usually when they're facing us, they all look big. Even if compared to the person over there, they might not be that big. But they're all kind of normal situations for us to face. So how do we deal with this? Well, the first thing is we need to be emotionally honest with ourselves. Naomi is a beautiful example of emotional honesty. Hey, Naomi. Hey, Pleasant. How you doing? Don't call me Pleasant. Call me bitter. Life sucks. I've been through a horrible tragedy. Let me tell you about it. And you're like, whoa, yes, you have. So from now on, you will call me bitter. And she was incredibly upfront about how she was doing. I didn't notice her, the English version of Naomi, saying, hey, Naomi, you're back. Yeah, I'm fine. No, you're not. There's nothing fine about what's happened in your life. But she was upfront and honest about it. And we need to be people who will be upfront and honest about how we're doing how things are going on. We need to be able to name the emotions we're feeling and kind of own them. We need to be able to cry when we're sad and kind of get louder when we're angry, or however you do it, and, and express that frustration openly and honestly. Obviously, where and with whom you do that, use some discretion, but we still need to be able to, to do that, to, to get it out. We need to be able to shout and scream. We go for a walk. In, we've got a beautiful park that's really big. They won't hear you. You know, just to, to vent, shout into a pillow, whatever it is, but just to get the emotions out, to cry, to name it, to acknowledge it. That hurt me. That upset me. I'm angry about that. It's, even if you know it won't get you anywhere, as in the situation won't change, but just acknowledging and expressing it. So we need to be emotionalist with ourselves. We need to be emotionalist with God. Here's the great irony that we all miss all the time. God knows. He knows how you're feeling. He built you from like when you're in the womb. He said, I knitted you together. I know. God is never surprised. God, I'm really angry about this. Really? I had no idea. I wondered why you're walking around slamming doors and just being grouchy with everyone. It's a total surprise to me. No, God knows how you are. God knows how you're feeling. So if you can acknowledge yourself, you need to acknowledge it to God. That means prayer. It just means talking to God and saying, God, this is how I'm doing. And if you actually read the Bible with those eyes, there's some specific moments where people were incredibly honest with God to the point where it's really uncomfortable. Have you read Psalm 137? Made famous by Boniem. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, yeah, we wept, because we remembered Zion. 
Basically, it's talking about they were in captivity. They'd been removed from Jerusalem. They'd been taken to Babylon. They were dumped down by the river, and they were weeping because they remembered the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed. If you read on to the end of that psalm, they're pouring out their hearts to God. Bear in mind, this is in the Bible. If you, work, if you read how it ends, I don't know whether to tell you. make you go and look it up, but I'll tell you. This is how it ends. It basically said, the ones who've done it, this is a psalm of, of God in the Bible. It says, the people who've done this, do you know what should happen? Their children should be picked up and their skulls smashed against the rocks. I'm sorry. This is a psalm. And it's in our Bible. Look it up. There was an emotionally honest response to their nation being destroyed their city being destroyed and then being carted off to captivity. They laid it out to God. This is how we feel. We are so angry. We are so distraught at the situation. That's what we're wishing on our oppressors, those who've taken us. We need to be mostly honest with God. Here's another thing. He can handle it. He can cope. He can deal with it. Be emotionally honest with God. Prayer, if you need to write down the journal, whatever you need to do, be emotionally honest with God. So emotionally honest with ourselves, emotionally honest with God, and then lastly, emotionally honest with others. I don't know if you remember, was it last week or the week before, Melanie and my wife brought a word here about taking the mask off and actually being open with one another about how we're doing. Some idiot called this church Real Life Church. So we need to be open and honest about how life is going. I was at a leaders weekend a couple of weeks ago with the team here and we were away for the weekend and I went to a seminar. There was a, there was a slot in the, the kind of the conference plan where you got to pick a seminar and there's about five or six you could go to. And Mel and I went to one uh, that was actually being run by a friend of ours about being a church in, that walks in freedom. We thought, oh yeah, that sounds good, we'll go there. And we went in and I, I said, right, I'm not in charge here. I couldn't care less, I'm sitting at the back where I can just, and we went and sat at the back, and I was like, why do you have to sit at the back? And as soon as the lady running the seminar saw us, she was like this. And so Mel traipses us down the front. So I'm sitting in the front row, thinking, oh, come on, I do that every week. So there we are, sitting in the front, and she's talking about freedom. And as she was talking about it, she talked about being emotionally honest with yourself and dealing with emotions and actually owning how you're feeling in all situations. And I felt God just start to nudge me and actually said, how I deal with my emotions, I tend to push them down. I don't tend to acknowledge them. I'm much more of a logical, kind of cold, hard facts person. When Mel starts getting all, you know, female on me, and I'm like, just sit down, calm down, explain to me what's gone so I can solve it. You know, that's, that's how it works. And apparently that's not the best way. But, <laughs> but I felt the Lord start to nudge me and push me. And, and at the, I found at the end of the meeting, he said, we're going to respond, stand up. So we all kind of stood up. In the room, and I felt God say, okay, you need to kind of nail some of this stuff and emotions. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I stood up, and I was just there like this, and I was praying, and God, I repent uh, for my kind of attitudes towards that, and actually I want to be someone who just, who, who validates emotion in others, but also is honest with myself emotionally as well. And then some people came and prayed for me, and Wendy, the lady running the seven, she came and prayed for me, and next time I'm sobbing, and there's snot, you know, the whole, you know, the whole kind of thing. Um, but then afterwards, we had a debrief leaders meeting the, the following Sunday evening, and we kind of, how, what did God speak to you during the weekend? We kind of went around the table, uh, and I started, and I said, look, this is what happened with me. I felt God say this to me, da 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 And then suddenly something happened, and we went around the table, and everyone started sharing, just level, and there was emotions, and the tissue box got passed around, and everyone was sharing, and nothing got sold particularly that night. No, there was no solutions or anything, but people were just honest with one another on how it's going. 
And it sort of it pushed us forward as a team and strengthened us and deepened us because we're just like, let's just be upfront with how things are going. People shared pain and tragedy that were going on in their life or just where they were at the moment and just dealing with the stress of life. Mel and I have this thing which we do every so often, kind of on our day off. We have four questions that we ask each other and we basically say, what are you happy about? What are you sad about? What are you mad about? And what are you fearful and anxious about? Four questions, four things. Happy, sad, mad, fearful and anxious. And we use it as a way to talk to each other about how we're doing really. And it's just a tool we use and I'm just offering it to you as something to try with someone. Just answer this question. What are you happy about right now? What are you sad about? What are you mad about? And what are you fearful or anxious about? And it's just a great way of just processing emotions and talking about them. You might want to try that in your life groups um, this week. Um, If you've got a big life, you might want to split it down because it will take a little bit of time. But just processing your emotions. This is where I am on what we are. All right, next one. No one is too far from God. No one is too far from God. Ruth is a beautiful example of this. She was a foreigner, outside God's people. That's going to come up again and again in the story. It's already mentioned. If you track through that first chapter, how many times it mentions Ruth from Moab, and she's a Moabite, and it just keeps, because that's going to be significant as we go on. But she was a foreigner. She was outside God's people. She worshipped a false god. That's what she would have grown up in, this pagan society, not knowing the law of God, not knowing the stories of God, not knowing the promises of God for his people. She was completely removed from that. She was given by name of the ideal get-out-of-jail card. You, I release you from your kind of debt to me as mother-in-law. It's a mother-in-law anyway. It's not even a mother. It's a mother-in-law. You know about those. You know. Anyway, I've got a great mother-in-law. Um, but... She, she, she said, you can go. And Orpah took it. Yep, I'm going back. I'm going back. But what did Ruth do? She gave herself to the God of Israel. She said, no, I'm going to follow you. God did a work in her heart that caused her to throw her lot in with Ruth, which was just the worst bet. If it was a bet at a casino, it was just the worst bet. This woman, she's a widow. She's got nothing. But she has the God of Israel who has everything. And she chooses to follow her. And the truth that we need to take away today is that no one is too far from God's grace and mercy. No one. I don't know if there's people in your life you've written off. I was having a conversation with someone just this week. And we were chatting about someone we both knew mutually. And we were just chatting. And they kind of used to come to church and used to follow the Lord. And they're now so far from God. It's just, I don't know, I almost, can you get further would be my response. And I remember chair, and we were just almost sitting there. And in my heart, I realized, in my mind, I'd written them off. Almost like, God can't save them. God can't get them. They're too far from God's mercy. They're too far from God's grace. There's no way his loving kindness could reach them. And I realized I'd believe in a lie. <laughs> That's a load of rubbish. There is no one outside God's grace, God's mercy. And I don't know if there's people in your life like that. There's people who thought, maybe they're just too far from God. Or maybe you've looked at them and thought, you know what, they're almost they're too good for God. They seem to live their life well. They don't need God. I've got friends like that sometimes. You look at your life, you think everything seems to be going right for you, and you seem happy, and you've got relationships happy, and children happy, and everything's work. It's almost like you don't need God, which again is a lie, is ridiculous. Of course they do. They need him just as much as anyone else. Maybe there's people you've just been praying for and praying for and praying for, and just nothing's happened. They show no interest religion, or maybe they just, they, they're anti the Christian mission. They just, and almost like they've got more and more hostile. 
Maybe it's a friend, a loved one, a family member like that. But in this situation, I want to remind you of a couple of people. The first one, you've got Ruth there, but also what about the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament? A murderer, hated Christians, persecuting the church, so anti-God, and yet one encounter with Jesus, what happens? He becomes the most ardent supporter of Christ and his church, and God does miraculous things through him. Wow, he shouldn't have got saved, and he did. I've actually got written in my notes, written in my notes, John. John Newton. Do you read that? I'm, I'm preaching. Where'd you... Do you, do you do, Oh, okay, have you, right, okay. I don't know if we work like that, you know, you just, it's, I might preach. No. John Newton was a, a vile human being. There's no other way to describe it. If you read his story, read his biography, Mel, Mel's got a bunch of biographies, he's got the John Newton one. He's just, he was a horrific man. And yet God saved him. He wrote a song, we're still singing, and I've got a feeling we're still going to be singing in a hundred more years about the grace of God that just transformed him. He shouldn't have become a Christian, let alone a minister of God's word, and he was. Who's the person you're writing off in your life now? Who's the person you're thinking, do you know what? God couldn't reach them. It's time to start praying again. It's time to start believing God. Last one, we've got to stop them. God never stops working in our lives. God never stops working. Good times, bad times. If you've read the whole story of um, Ruth... Naomi has just been through some of the most horrific tragedy you could ever wish on a person. Yet if you look at her at the end of the book, there's a thing to go and read it, chapter 4, God has worked it out far beyond you could ever imagine. If you had told her in chapter 1, do you know what's going to happen by the end of chapter 4? She wouldn't have believed you. But God doesn't stop working. You don't always see it. don't always know about it. But God's plan for their life, for Naomi's life, has already been worked out. With Ruth coming with it, it's already in motion. And she's going around going, call me bitter. God has just set his heart against me. I'm bitter. I've got nothing. I'm empty. And already God is putting in the blocks for the plan that will redeem her, her family, the family line that will one day result in Jesus. So already the plans are in place. And Naomi can't see that because she's kind of lost in her pain. But one day she will. and she'll, Even then when she does, she doesn't have the full inkling. She'll know something, but she'll know, in eternity she should know. But she doesn't know what's coming. And the same for us. I don't know what you're facing right now, but God is at work in your life. Even if you're sitting there going, do you know what? I'm not even a Christian. don't know why I'm here at church. God's working. That's why you're here, <laughs> to hear this message. God is doing something else. So wherever you are, whether you're on the high, whether you're on the low, whether you're somewhere in between, whether life's busting you, God is at work and he is building out a plan for you. I'll share a little bit more of the story next week about how, we, how this church came to be, how God used pain and tragedy for us to get us here, to get you here in this room. Incredible. But God is at work. I've seen the time. Do you want to stand up? We're gonna, we haven't got the band, if you've noticed. I'm just going to pray and kind of lead us in a response.